Well, hello again. We're ready to do the fifth and final lesson in a series we've been calling Elisha's Double Portion. Just by way of review, um, reminding you that Elisha has succeeded Elijah. And for some 60 years now, Elisha has been ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel. We looked at uh, his commitment in our first lesson about how he slaughtered his oxen and burnt the plow and, and made a definitive break from his previous life as he turned to, to embrace the responsibilities God had for him as, as his prophet. We, we saw in our second lesson uh, how Elisha prayed for a double portion of God's spirit. He wasn't, he was a, wasn't asking for a double amount of blessings he just saw the tremendous responsibility ahead and asked for God to give him everything that he'd need to get that job done. We saw how Elisha responded to people who were suffering and, and how God wanted to use ordinary things uh, in, in, a, in a miraculous way. But those kinds of miracles that were in uh, the story of Elisha and frankly, are in our own lives, those, those miracles, uh, God's looking for participants, that he's looking for those who want to get after it and be a part of what he wants to do. Last week, we then looked at all the principles for, for starting over. Um, there were two stories, the one about the commander of the Syrian army uh, who was healed uh, from leprosy when he chose to humble himself, and then we saw how there was a borrowed locks, lost uh, axe head, and it was restored in a miraculous fashion. We saw some principles of how to start over. But this week, we're going to turn our attention and focus on the, on the, on the prayer life of Elisha. And uh, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 8 through verses 23. So in eight, uh, verse 8 and uh, down to verse 12, we get the setting for this story. It says, the Bible says, Now the king of uh, Amron was at war with Israel. After conferring with his uh, officers, he said, I'm going to set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing the place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. Now, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. So Ben-Hadad, the, the king of um, Aram, uh, which is really Syria, was at war with the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. And he frequently would send out, you know, guerrillas uh, to raid the villages in the northern part of Israel. But every time that was about to occur, God would give Elisha, the prophet, some uh, supernatural advanced knowledge of those attacks, and then he'd pass that information on to Israel's king. So naturally, Ben-Hadad is going to assume that it's somebody in his camp that's leaking the battle plans, 
and so he confronts his officers. But they, those officers, convince him that the culprit is not somebody in, in their own camp uh, in Syria. No, that the prophet, Elisha, is, um, is messing up their, their plans. And so they identify where Elisha is. He's in a town called Dothan. So in verses 13 and 14, Ben-Hadad finds Elisha. Listen to the scriptures. He says, go out and find where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and they surrounded the city. Now, uh, a couple of things. Dothan is a city in the northern hills of, of Samaria. It's actually only mentioned twice in our Bible in this account and also in uh, Genesis 37, which is the, the story of Joseph being kidnapped. You know, his brothers uh, dropped him in a well and then he was kidnapped by some, some uh, traders and then he was sent off into Egypt. Um, that, that town where that occurred was in Dothan. Uh, the Bible says that, that uh, Ben-Hadad is sending a strong force to surround uh, the prophet. First off, uh, a strong force would indicate horses and chariots, uh, you know, a formidable army, not a little raiding party. And they, they sneak uh, around the, the town at night. They, they come in quietly and they surround the town. Now, surrounding a town was a, a standard operating procedure for armies back then. Uh, it was a way to protect their own men and they would literally surround and cut off a village or a town or a city. And after a, a protract, protracted period of time, they'd, uh, in essence, starve out the, the uh, enemy. And that would protect their own, their own soldiers, soldiers. So that's what's happening here. Ben-Hadad is sending quietly a massive army around the city of Dothan. He wants to capture and shut up the prophet Elisha. Verse 15 and 16, we're going to see the response of, of Elisha's servant. So he says, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with those horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And he responds and says, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Now, this is not the same servant that we've seen in chapters 4 and 5 of Second Kings. That was a guy by the name of Gehazi. Um, Gehazi in chapter 4 had a really good testimony as he worked with Elisha. And in chapter 5, not such a good testimony. But this guy that's mentioned here in our passage in chapter 6 is not Gehazi. He is a, he is a, a different kind of servant. The word that's used here for servant really is a, probably best translated minister. So this is a special or more personal kind of servant that was there specifically to minister to Elisha. Um, they, are, they are in a home somewhere uh, where there is a commanding view of the valley. So early in the morning, the servant gets up, presumably to go get some water, perhaps to light the fire, and he sees that, that strong force that surrounded the town. And of course, he panics. He asks that, that dramatic question, uh, oh my Lord, what shall we do? Um, that, that question has been asked me of, in, a, in a variety of a set of circumstances over my 50 years of following the Lord. 
um, people do find themselves in situations that seem incredibly overwhelming. Um, illnesses, uh, financial disasters, uh, various kinds of accidents, losses of jobs, uh, marriage breakups, uh, children going south for the winter. The, these kinds of situations can be incredibly overwhelming. And that's the, the response. That's what this servant is saying. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do in, in light of an overwhelming, uh, disastrous set of circumstances? Well, verses 16 and 17, Elijah's going to answer, and, and you're going to see God at work. In verse 16, uh, the prophet says, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And verse 17 says, Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the servant, when he walked out in the morning, it was a real encounter. He didn't imagine it. The, the enemy was real. What he saw was part of his real circumstances. There were uh, enemy armies camped all around his town. But, but when God, God provides an answer, the answer comes in the, in the form of Elisha's words. Now, I want you to see, slow down a little bit here, and notice the, the components of how Elisha answers. He doesn't just say, hey, don't worry, it'll be fine. Um, he doesn't say, you know, let's pray and, and just jump into prayer. No, he starts by expressing some, some very real tender concern and care for his servant. He uses that phrase, don't be afraid. That is probably the most prolific verse or phrase in our Bible. Some scholars will say there are over 365 specific references to tell human beings not to worry in God's word. He doesn't want us to be afraid. That is our first response when we're overwhelmed with negative circumstances. And he, he that is, Elisha is saying to the servant, hey, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I have some real uh, genuine concern and care for you. I'm, I'm empathetic. I'm sympathetic. I'm, I'm responding to your need. And then he gives him some, some biblical instruction or, or some facts, some, some scriptural facts to consider. He says, literally, those who are with us are more than those that are with them. So he's saying, hey, I get it. There is a strong army surrounding us. But, but Lord, open his eyes. Let him see the army of God, that there are more on our side than are on the side that he can see with his physical eyes. Now, um, he goes on then to pray. He does a simple prayer. He says, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Um, I read an interesting story, I can't verify it, although I read it in more than one place, uh, about a missionary who was working, I believe, in Africa somewhere. He was a medical missionary, and he was going from one village to another, particularly to get additional supplies to minister to folks uh, out in the bush. And in order to make that trip, he had to spend a night on, on the road, if you will. And he was traveling alone, so halfway between the two destinations, he made a little camp and went to sleep. 
uh, and uh, and uh, later on heard heard a story from one of the the village elders uh, about that particular night. The village elder said, "Hey, did you?" did you know that we came to kill you? And he goes, no, I, I had a good night's sleep that night. It was no big deal. He said, yeah, a, a number of the guys from my village came uh, to kill you. Uh, and uh, when we got there, um, we thought you would be alone. But in fact, there were 26 soldiers standing around you. And that was more than we had, so we left. Now, this guy that was telling the story to the missionary had, had come to Christ um, during the the timing of the story, he was just a, a warrior who wanted to kill off the missionary. But now, having come to Christ, he's telling him about the story. We wanted to come kill you, um, but we couldn't because there were 26 warriors circling you. So years later, the missionary is sharing this story uh, when he was back home in his home church. And all of a sudden, one of the guys in the church uh, stopped him and said, Can you tell us when that happened exactly? The guy, you know, went back through his mind and came up with a date. And the, the guy in the home church uh, started grinning, and he said, Yeah, I, I know about that night. Um, I had an impulse to pray for you. And so I, uh, I, I called some friends, and, and we had a special prayer meeting on your behalf that night. So he turned to the congregation, and he said, Hey, guys, how many of you were there at that special prayer meeting on such and such a night? And 26 men stood up. 26 men. Those 26 men here in the United States had a special time of prayer on behalf of a missionary who was sleeping by himself in the jungles of Africa. And when the natives came to kill him off, they didn't see just the sleeping missionary. They saw the 26 emissaries that God had sent to surround that missionary. That is exactly what's being told to us in this story of Elisha. And when when Elisha tells uh, responds to his servant. He responds to his servant with great kindness. Then he gives them the biblical principles, and then he has a time of prayer. He is responsive to the need. Um, very, very often, we're not so responsive when there is a need. We might be a little quick uh, to slap a spiritual band-aid on somebody's wound, and we forget how devastating and hurtful that situation might be. You know, uh, Elisha's response here is is echoing some some incredible words that a, a king uh, later on is going to echo uh, or is going to say. Uh, Hezekiah is the one that I have in mind. King Hezekiah, if you have your Bibles, turn to Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two. Um, these words of encouragement struck me. And they're very similar to what Hezekiah is saying. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is invading Jerusalem, and people are, are, are threatened and scared to death and worried. And he comes along in Second uh, Chronicles 32, verse 7 and 8. Hezekiah says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the Bible goes on and says, And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king of Judah said. I think that's exactly what happened when Elisha responded to his servant. The servant's eyes are open. 
he sees the host of heavenly angels surrounding that home, and he has a different response. He is encouraged. Now, when the Bible in 2 Kings 6 talks about a heavenly host, it's, an, it's a way of saying a huge angelic army. And he describes this angelic army as, uh, as being horses and chariots. So in verse 17, he says, Lord, open the eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. He looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around uh, Elisha. Horses and chariots of fire. Horses and chariots were a symbol of divine power. You remember the story of Elijah just a couple of chapters back when he was taken up to heaven there were horses and chariots uh, appearing. They are a symbol of God's power, uh, usually associated with angelic beings. So let's take just a quick moment, and this is outlined for you in, in the notes for this lesson, but a word or two about angels. Um, when I got to studying this passage, I thought, oh, maybe we should take just a, a, a moment uh, to, to talk about them. First off, Angels are not uh, people. Um, angels are separate created beings. In fact, they were created before man. Um, in uh, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, there's a sense of order for the creation. And then Job reiterates it in Job 38. Um, the angels were created before man was created. Now, some angels uh, exist to worship and serve Yahweh, and others uh, not so. Um, in Revelation chapter 5, when John is seeing a throne room, he says, I look and I, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. So some of them worship and serve the Lord, and others, they rebelled with, with Satan or Lucifer, and, and they, are, they are serving him uh, Jude, uh, verse 6, talks about those that rebelled with Satan. There are definitely different classes or kinds of angels. Um, our Bible mentions at least three. Seraphim are mentioned in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah says, um, I saw the Lord, and it's a, a, a view or a scene of the throne room, and in it are seraphim, and they're named. Um, when God locks up the Garden of Eden so no one can get in after Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, um, cherubim are mentioned. Uh, and then we have the third classification uh, acknowledged in our Bible, the archangels. Um, these apparently are a, a leadership class. We have two of them actually named, Michael and Gabriel, um, Michael uh, is um, seen in Daniel several times doing battle with the demonic forces. And uh, Gabriel uh, is the one, uh, you may remember, that was involved in announcing uh, Christ's birth. So three different classes or kinds of angels at least, seraphim, cherubim, and the archangels. Angels don't marry. They're not like human beings. Their relationships are different. We can find that in Matthew 22. Um, but they are. There is a sense in which they are assigned to to believers. Um, when I was a kid, um, I was taught that you know each of us had a single guardian angel. I don't know that we have a single guardian angel, but the Bible does say that there have been some assigned to us. 
Turn to he Hebrews chapter 1 and look at verse 14. Hebrews 1, 14. The Bible says this, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And of course the answer to that is yes, they are. Matthew chapter 18, verse number uh, 10, uh, in reference to children, um, makes a comment about their angels. So there are angels assigned to believers. And in particular, in uh, Psalm 91, verse number 11, the Bible says, For he will command the angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. So um, we do have those angels, plural probably, who have been assigned to us to help uh, to guide and, and to guard uh, the believers. Um, sometimes when I am being particularly ornery, uh, I will uh, laugh and say to the Lord, I'll bet the angels that are assigned to me are asking for another assignment now. They've been overworked a bit this week. But angels are real. Uh, they are outlined uh, in our Bible and worthy of some study. A couple of regular books that could help you. One I read years ago by Billy Graham called Angels, and there's a newer book out by David Jeremiah, also with the same title, uh, Angels. So God opens the servant's eyes in our story, and he sees this heavenly uh, host, this huge angelic army surrounding him and the army that was there from Syria. So verse 18, back into Second Kings now. Verse 18, as the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord. This is the second time he's prayed. He prayed first that his servant's eyes would be open, and now he's going to pray and say, strike these people with blindness. So God struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Um, the Aramean army is now blinded. Um, they, they can't see their hand in front of their face. Um, if you've never been in a situation where it is so dark that you cannot see anything, uh, it is a terrifying experience. Uh, I was once up in uh, Alcatraz in San Francisco, and they took us down into one of the, the cells that was used for guys when they were naughty, the solitary ones. And he said, I promise I'll close this door on you and not leave it closed longer than 30 seconds. And I said, sure, I'll try that. Well, I, I just about wigged out. That darkness is is uh, frightening in many different ways. So God has struck these people blind. And, and so now what's going to happen to them? Well, Elisha comes up and starts talking to him. He says in verse 19, Hey, this is, um, this is not the road, and uh, this is not the city. Hey, come on and follow me, and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. So he, he doesn't disguise himself necessarily, but apparently they didn't know his voice. And so he speaks to this army and, and offers to lead them back to, to, their, to their king, Ben-Hadad. And instead, what he does is he takes them up to the, where the king of Israel is in the northern part there of Samaria. And once, it, once he gets them up there, in verse 20, he says, After they entered the city, Elisha says, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. So here's the third time he's going to pray. And it says, the Bible says, and the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. All right, um, kind of a panicky moment. I mean, it would have taken hours, if not maybe a, a full day for Elisha to lead them down. Can you imagine what the conversation was like? Um, somehow he didn't reveal who he was. They didn't know who he was. 
they think they're being led back to their king and instead they're they're going to find themselves in the in the presence of um, of the king of Israel uh, he's asking then that their eyes be opened and they were in verse 21 it says when the king of Israel saw them he he asks Elijah well shall I kill him my father a, a term of endearment shall, shall I kill him is it is this is a time when we wipe them out all right they've been They've been pestering us and warring against us and guerrilla activity over and over and over again on a northern flank. Is this the time to wipe them out? And in verse 22, Elisha takes a different approach. He says, don't kill him. Um, would, would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? In other words, hey, these are prisoners of war. We don't just go killing them because they're, they're no longer a threat. They're not a combatant. Let's take a different approach here. And he suggests that they treat them with kindness. He says, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's set some food and water out for them. And, and, and they were going to eat and drink. And then they can go back to their master. And the king of Israel goes along with this. In verse 23, he prepares a great feast. After they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them on their way. And they returned to their master. What a, what a, a remarkable response uh, and suggestion by uh, Elisha. That, that they treat this, this uh, band or army of, of the enemy with a, with a kind response. It, it called to mind the story in 1 Kings uh, chapter 12, where the new king Rehoboam, he's the son of Solomon, he takes the throne and he brings in some counselors and he says, hey guys, you know, uh, how, how should I treat the people? And the counselor said, you know, hey, it was tough when your dad was was ruling he kind of a a lot of demands on us a lot of a lot of uh, uh, taxes were given and and so on and so forth hey if you want to capture the heart of the people here's what you ought to do treat them with kindness come in a little lighter uh, treat them with a little more uh, graciousness and and they'll follow you to the ends of the earth and the story goes on to say that that Rehoboam would not listen to the wise counselor counselors who happened to be older and instead listened to his buddies. And he chose instead to, to up the ante, to make it worse on him, to, to create more taxes, to demand for more from his people. And, and in fact, he did not get their love and respect. Instead, in our story, Elisha says, wait a minute, king, here's a chance to do something different. Rather than come down hard, let's come down with some graciousness. And look at what the result was. The very last sentence in verse 23 says, so the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. They responded in a positive way. There was a remarkable change of heart. So this is, this is a cool story. The story of a servant waking up and seeing a massive army about to, to, to capture his, his master. And, and Elisha coming out going, you just don't see it all. You don't see everything there is to see. Lord, open his eyes. And the scales of his eyes drop away and he sees the incredible support that's come from God in the form of this massive heavenly host, uh, an army of angels. And then, then when, when uh, the response could be wipe them out, instead Elisha asks that they be blinded. He takes them to his king. His king uh, asks the critical question, can we kill him off? No, let's ask God to give them back their sight and let's treat them with kindness 
And look what happens. The band stopped raiding Israel's territory. Well, I find this story to be fascinating on many levels, but I think we could take away at least three very specific practical insights from, from this story. The, the first one, and, it, and it's kind of an obvious one, but let's, let's mention it. We, we are, in fact, never alone. Um, not only has God himself promised to always be with us. The last words out of Matthew 28, before Jesus went back to heaven, he says, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He over and over and over again talked about, I'm sending another comforter to be with you. There, there is the truth that for a child of God, there is never a time when we are alone. Um, and, and, he, and he also promises when two or three of us get together, he's in that midst as well. So the principle that we can get from this story is the principle that, that God has, has promised us to never leave us by ourselves. We're never going to find ourselves in a situation where the comfort of God is not available to us. Um, I've had a couple of friends recently in uh, serious situations in the hospital, and in both of their cases, they were they were either so confused or actually unconscious that no comfort from relatives or uh, family members or uh, even the staff at the hospital could reach them. And I prayed uh, with great fervor that God would open their spiritual eyes, that they could sense, even though they were not able with their wide-awake mind to perceive it, but that they, with their spirit, they would be able to perceive the, the, the host of angelic beings and the spirit of God that would be present in that hotel or hospital room with them. The Bible says in Psalm 27, verse number 3, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. That's in Psalm 27. Um, we are, in point of fact, never alone. Second thing I think we can get from this story is that the, the truth, the, the teaching to us, that we need to learn how to respond when people are, are hurting learn how to respond in kindness. I mentioned a few minutes ago that too often when a, when a friend or a loved one is expressing their deepest fears or concerns or uh, talking about the, the difficult circumstances of their life, we're way too quick to just reference um, a, a, a Bible uh, principle or a passage uh, almost as if it was some sort of a, a magic band-aid that could be slapped on the wound, and then there, all's better. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, don't you feel better? Well, very often they don't. Consider carefully how Elisha responded to his servant's fear. He started with the care and the concern and the encouragement. Don't be afraid. And then, only after he had empathetically entered into what was going on in the mind and heart of his servant, did he go, did he go on to add some, some insights from some biblical instruction or some biblical facts that could counteract that fear? You know, um, he, he, he says, he that is with us is greater than, than he that is uh, in the world sort of thing. 
there's more with us than are, that are with the other guy. He gave some insights into biblical passages, but, but not until he had expressed his great care in a patient and, and gentle kind of way. And then lastly, he prayed, and he prayed very simply. Sometimes I've watched people that, that are considered spiritual leaders uh, in a time of crisis, and it's like they think it's a time for great oratory. It's, it's not. It's a time for simpleness, to enter in with prayer uh, for the person uh, who's hurting. So the, the second lesson I take from this is let's stop sharing platitudes or well-worn biblical expressions. And instead, let's consider how we may spur one another on uh, toward love and good deeds right out of Hebrews 10. And, and I think that there is a, a great passage in Deuteronomy uh, on this subject, Deuteronomy 31 and verse number 8. Let me turn there in my Bible. Deuteronomy 31, 8. This is Moses getting ready to pass the baton to, to Joshua. And he says in verse 8, The Lord himself goes before you, Joshua, and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. That's the kind of advice and encouragement we ought to give somebody in a, in a moment of panic. Well, there's a third thing I think we can take out of this passage. And that's just the observation that there's a whole lot of blindness going on. There's a whole lot of blindness in this story. Um, the, the, the believer and the unbeliever both are struck with blindness. Well, first off, the, the believer, that's the servant in this, in this story. Um, we can assume from his title as a minister and his role with Elisha that he's a follower of Yahweh. But, but he is blind. He doesn't see the spiritual implications of the situation. And then you got the unbelievers in the story. That's all the, the army, the Syrian army, the Arameans who are there, and God strikes them blind so Elisha can take them back uh, to his own king, and they're not able to harm the city of Dothan. There, there, there is a time here when when God's going to respond to Elisha's prayer for both of these groups, that the believer and all of the unbelievers would have the, the scales removed from their eyes. And my takeaway to that is that you and I ought to think about and pray for all of the people in our lives who are stumbling around in spiritual darkness. We get all worked up about what kind of spiritual darkness it is. But the truth of the matter is, black is black, dark is dark, can't see is can't see, no light is no light. Um, what we ought to be doing is finding a, a very specific way to pray for these people who are stumbling around in darkness, that God would cure their blindness and open their eyes. And I'd like to suggest that a way to do that is to actually pray the words of Scripture uh, back to God in the form of a prayer. There are a lot of them listed for us in our Bible. And as you study God's word and you come across a time or a place where there's, where there's prayer, you ought, to, you ought to box it up. I've written in the margin of my Bible uh, uh, in a number of places, hey, here's a prayer that I could pray for people. And one of my favorites is in Ephesians chapter 3. It starts in verse 14. It says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, 
from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches you may he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you may be rooted and established in love and may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is an incredible prayer to pray for those who are stumbling around in spiritual darkness. You know, the, the Bible's talking there about getting to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love. It's incredible to think about that. You know, um, his, his love came for us. Ephesians, uh, just a chapter or two before, he says in verse 4, that, that he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So before he created uh, all that he did in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, he had you and I in mind and in love was choosing us. You know, when you think about how wide or how high or how deep is this universe, I, I, was, I had reason to think about light years the other day. A light year is, is almost uh, six trillion miles long. And they're estimating that from the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, to the edge of what they think is the edge of the universe, that, that it's uh, 950,000 light years away. Well, do the math. Six trillion times 950,000? I can't even fathom it. And that's how I feel about the love of God. It is so overwhelming that in a crisis, it brings great strength and encouragement. So I pray that those that are stumbling around in darkness, we might use the very words out of Ephesians 3 and pray for them. Pray that they have their blinders removed and pray that they can embrace the incredible love story of our Heavenly Father. Well, this is a, a, a place to stop in the study of Elisha. We could have gone on for five or six more weeks, but it's the last of my series. And I put some discussion questions on the end of the notes. First question was, do you, uh, do you struggle with feeling lost and alone? And um, what would happen if God removed your blinders and you could see the angelic support and the evidence of the Spirit of God surrounding you? Would you, would you be inclined to join in on that joyful assembly? And the second question was, when someone is in need in your life, how do, how do you respond? Is there great care and concern, or are you just ready to slap a verse in there? And I think you ought to think about and talk about, maybe in a small group, about how Elisha addressed his servant. And lastly, are you in the habit of praying Scripture back to God? And if so, great, and if not, why not? And my suggestion to you is to take a passage in Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11, and uh, start praying that back for the people that are in your life. Well, that ends our series in Elisha. Hey, thanks for listening. It would have been no fun without you. <laughs>